0: Well, the summer doldrums are upon us, huh? I know several families are away on vacation. Uh, In fact, uh, our family just got back. Um, As most of you know, we've been gone for the past three weeks. I just got back from a a trip to California driving. We uh, started in Rockford, and by the first night we made it to the Badlands, um, had a, a night in the Badlands and tried to make it to Yosemite the next day, but was seeing Mount Rushmore. We just couldn't quite make it, so we're on the outskirts of Yosemite. Had a great campground there, and then spent a couple nights in uh, in Yellowstone itself. Um, Yosemite, I said Yellowstone. I just always mix this was up. I can't can't get them right. And then we went to Bend, Oregon. Uh, spent some time with Jake Schwartz. Many of you know him. He's a music pastor of a of a church there. We spent. Sunday, Saturday with him, Sunday with him, I saw Crater Lake. So coming down from Oregon, spent some time in northern Minnesota, uh, northern California on a property that my, my in-laws own, um, really way out in the middle of nowhere. Some of you on the Weekly Word saw the pictures of the dust. How many did you see that? Um, I have you to know that the, um the four-wheeler that SR was driving had an axle that broke. And so I was talking to SR, I said, hmm, I wonder how that axle broke. He was kind of jumping up, and I think he landed a bit hard. Um, but I'm not sure Grandpa Ray would say that. He, he claims that's not what, what killed it. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, we're there, and then spent some time with, uh, Vaughn's folks at her parents' place, went some time with some, uh, friends from UCLA and back, and then we drove back. Had a, had a wonderful time. And, uh, finally, we back Illinois, we're back here Wednesday evening, we've been trying to, Trying to catch up since then. As a family, also we are just very thankful to be able to do that. Just for me, just pastorally, it was just good to kind of get away, uh, refresh and recharge our bodies. And just we thank you for making that possible and available for us, built great memories for our kids, which I hope and trust they will be with our kids a long time, uh, long time beyond even when we're gone. Um, and hopefully, it's a time refreshing for us as we face this new year together. The people that we love here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Um, and so this, this Sunday, what I wanted to do is preach a message entitled, What I Learned on My Summer Vacation. My parents, for the past several years, have spent the majority of the winter down in Arizona. And the church they've attended, there's East Valley Bible Church. And Tom Schrader, from time to time, has preached a, a sermon called, What I Learned on My Summer Vacation. So I'm going to try that, and uh, we'll see how it, how it goes. My message this morning will be a lot different than normal. Usually we open our Bibles... Camp on a text and just kind of dig and rich, um, find all the mines and jewels that are, are there for us. Um, been doing that for years. We're going through Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, next week. Um, but this week's just going to be a, a little bit different. Going to tell uh, a few more stories and experiences. But um, what we're going to do is go to different texts. My my topics are going to be hodgepodge, but they they do flow from my life and what things I learned while on vacation. It was a it was a lot of learning time. We spent, we drove 5,600 miles um, as we went up to Oregon and back home. And during that whole time, we had a lot of the time we had uh, books on tape playing. Uh, we read through one of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair, together. We had family worship in the car uh, while we were going, and so just a, a time very actually it's interesting. A very little time to read in the traveling time. Uh, I did get some when we settled down, but. But just a lot of seeing and viewing what we observed and and learning on on top of that. But I I do want to have you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24, because there's a verse in there that really brings forth um, what I'm going to seek to do with my message this morning. Proverbs 24 verse 32, the wise man said this, he says, When I saw, I reflected upon it, I looked and received instruction. I want you to notice here what's taking place. The writer isn't looking at something in the Bible, in the Scriptures. He's, saying, he's not saying, I read this in the Bible, and I, and I thought about it, and now I've learned. He didn't say that. What he was looking at was he was looking at something that was taking place, a surrounding him. Particularly, he was looking at a field. Look what he says to catch the context in verse 30. He said, I passed by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold... It was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. And its stone wall was broken down. And so he saw this, this field that was, was there. And it was, it, was a, it was a vineyard and it had a lot of weeds in it. And, and he noticed how uncared for this field was and how poor the crop would be. And, and then he started thinking about that and he drew this conclusion, having looked and learned and received instruction. And then he said this in verse 33. He said... A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, i.e. not not weeding your garden, not taking care of your vineyard, but just relaxing, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want-like armed man. And so look what here, the psalmist is doing. He's not just merely looking at the Bible, this verse, he's looking at life and receiving instruction by it and learning. And really, that's what I hope to do for you today. Um... Just kind of look at life of what I saw, learn from it, reflect upon it, and give it to you. Though we will we will certainly come to Scripture, and these are, are scriptural things. But I want to tell you what I saw, how I've reflected upon that, and that you might receive instruction as well. The idea for my message really came when I was um, in Yellowstone. And Ray, you can put up that slide. We arrived at the park Wednesday afternoon, and... Um, uh, we kind of then settled our campsite and then went out to a place called Mud Volcano. And it was a place where a lot of, I forget what, the thermal activity takes place. Where the, the deal with Yellowstone is that the magma underneath the, the ground is, is very close to the ground level. And so a lot of the heat comes up and so they have got these boardwalks. So you can't walk on the ground, you might sink down and burn yourself in the hot ground underneath. And as we were walking across this boardwalk, we saw some trees like this and... And I I saw them and really took very little notice of them. I was looking at the water spewing forth from the ground. I was looking at the trees in full bloom and the wildflowers that were there and saw these trees. And as we're walking along, there's this group led by a park ranger kind of coming back our way. And so we kind of joined back with them and started walking back where we had been. And someone asked about these trees and said, What what about these trees? Why why is the bark shaved away like that? And uh, the park ranger really just talked about the bison and how during the wintertime their coats get big and shaggy and heavy. And uh, during the springtime, they need to get that coat off of them. And so they, they come up the trees and they and they, they rub it, you know, against it like that. And then the sap from the pine helps to dissolve the, the fur. And so it helps to fall off of their bodies and helps to cool them down. And and having said that, then I looked and, and behold, there were lots of other trees that were just like this. We're like, oh, Okay, now we see a tree, now we understand a little bit more. And so now as I looked up on the landscape, I saw more than just the flowers and the, the water coming up and the, the mud pots and things, the flowers. I, I saw also these trees. And, and really that's what I hope to do for you this morning is just to, to see maybe things that, that you haven't seen before but would, would come open to you. And as I saw those things, one of the things I did immediately, I went to Yvonne and went to Chris NSR and I said, you know what, that's my job as a pastor is to show you things that are there that you see but you don't see and to maybe pull them out so that you might, might see them. And I just want to just make some observations from life and from our trip to make your life more, more enjoyable, make your life more um, discernible and understand the things that are, are going on. That's the spirit of my message this morning to take some things I experienced, show them to you, reveal them to you because my experiences are your experiences. Well, my first point this morning is this. The glory of God is to be experienced. So I learned the glory of God is to be experienced. You turn back to Psalm 19. Um, Phil read that for us. And I asked him to read it for us because I knew that I was going to get here. And really, this is some of the crux of my message. But it says, let me just read again the first six verses. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor their words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He's placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat." These verses tell us of the glories of creation. You look at the heavens and they are telling you of the glory of God. You consider how vast the heavens are. And you're being informed of the work of God. We know this, how the heavens declare that. But this takes place day after day and night after night, as verse 2 says. And the the day, the sun is proclaiming the glory of God. And the night, the stars and the moons are proclaiming the glory of God. And, And it does it all without words. It's much like music in this sense is that music is the language which transcends language, and so also creation is the language which transcends language, and also the creation proclaims the glory of God to everyone. Every, every everybody knows because it says there even in verse um, uh, verse four verse three. There's no speech nor the words of voices heard. Their line has gone out. Verse four through all the earth. And their utterances to the end of the world. There's no place hidden from this worldless preacher of God's creation. It's Paul's point in Romans 1:20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So there, without excuse, no one can can ever claim God hasn't made Himself known to me. God has made himself known to everybody through creation, to every living creature God has made himself known. And I love the way Job puts it in Job 12:7 through10, when he's talking about just his infliction that he had. He says, "Now ask the beasts and let them teach you, and the birds of the heaven let them tell you, or speak to the earth and let it teach you, and let the fish of the sea declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of a Lord has done this? in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And would the beasts be able to speak, as they do in Narnia? They would be able to tell you who made them. The Lord God made it all. They could tell you who inflicted Job. The Lord did this. It's from the hand of a Lord. Now often these verses that speak about how creation speaks this thing and the beasts know, often these are applied to apologetics. Everyone's accountable to God. And that's good and well. But there's a different way to apply it as well. Is that, that see, God didn't place Himself merely in creation to be a witness of judgment against people. God placed His witness in creation so as to make us feel the power of God, and, and turn our feelings uh, of just the immensity of God into awe and wonder and worship and praise to this Creator God who made it all. Or as I put it, my first point: the glory of God is to be experienced. Really, that's what I experienced on our vacation. We experienced God's glory. I can't tell you how many times we're riding along, and, and probably if you've driven this country in the West, particularly, and, and even we took a trip out to the East Coast, I remember this was as well a little bit. But you drive out here and you drive over a hill or over a Turner Bend, and, and you get this big scenery, and then what comes out of your mouth? Wow! And many times we're driving along, and you know, whether the kids are working on the computer or they're kind of putzing this or they're listening to this. And I say, kids, hey, look at this. You know, you just get a big splendor of a, of a majestic view. And oftentimes, hey, take a picture of that. You know, sort of scrambling around for a camera and taking a picture. And here's the thing though: I learned. Is that God's glory is in the creation. It, it, it's not, catch this subtle difference. It's not that the Scriptures declare that the creation declares the glory of God. It's the creation itself that's declaring the glory of God. The Scriptures are merely reporting the fact that it's the creation which is proclaiming how glorious God is. And, and I can show you picture after picture after picture after picture of the glory of God. You'd be impressed. But you know what? It, it's, it's, um, it, it's, not, it's different if you just see the picture rather than being there. I mean, in fact, let's look at some of these pictures. I mean, I can just show you these pictures. And I just have Ray. I, got, I just pull out 15 pictures. These mostly were taken from our car. This is Badlands. I kind of tried to arrange them a little bit thematically. I think that's the Tetons in uh, Idaho, maybe Wyoming, whatever. <laughs> Here's a big bend that we turned around and said, whoa, get your camera on that one. I don't even know where that one was. Where's that? Yellowstone, where that one was. That's Waterfall and... Yellowstone, these are just beautiful. That was that was gorgeous. Upper Falls, Lower Falls, I forget what it was. This was awesome. West stop it here, Ray. I was showing Ray this and uh this is the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. I was thinking it would be like a, a Grand Canyon, like in Arizona Grand Canyon, layered and stuff like that. But but this is I don't know, two thousand feet deep, something, Ray? Ray said, we got a picture just like this. Now, have you ever seen this? Been there? This is just an amazing place where they're sort of like, wow. Go on. No, it's neat. I think emerald something. Springs just coming up. Water coming out. Beautiful. Whatever that is, it was neat. <laughs> Crater Lake. Used to be a volcano. Now it's cratered up. That's Wyoming. Looks kind of like Badlands. Just outside of Yellowstone, I think. I forget where that one was. Few times again, and then some nice sunset pictures. And uh, you know, with these pictures, I think there's one more. I, with these pictures, I, I just I don't think you can take a bad picture. I mean, we're just taking these pictures out of the cars, so we're flying by and just shooting them, and they're they're just beautiful. But as I said, it's it's different than being there. Like like for instance, let me let me just show you. What if I show you a picture of this and say, "Wow, look at those stars! Isn't that wonderful?" What happens? You're like. That's a, that's, a, that's a beautiful picture of the stars. But have you experienced, how many of you have experienced this? Your night someplace, maybe you're camping someplace where you can see more of the stars, and you walk out, and the stars are all around, and you go, wow, right? You've you experienced that? Does this picture do it justice? Not even close. And, and all those pictures I showed you don't even do it justice. And so I just say God's glory is to be experienced, it's not merely to be proclaimed, though it is. It's not merely to be talked about, though it is. God's glory in creation is to be experienced. And then when we experience it, it ought to draw us to the worship of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who displayed Your splendor among the heavens. And so I just encourage you, church family, just get some place where you can experience the glory of God. It's not sufficient just to hear about it. It's not sufficient just to think about it. It's not sufficient to get some software program so you can identify the constellations. Now, you need to experience it. And I know you may not be able to take a trip to California through Yellowstone, but you know what? You can probably go out of town a ways. Maybe go visit the Miltons or something. I don't know. Go, go out on a clear night when the humidity not in the air and just get out and see the stars and do that often and behold the wondrous glory of the Lord. Because it is to be Experienced. Take it in, bask it in, and that's one thing I learned on my summer vacation. It's the glory of God' to be experienced like we did, and we need to do that to feel it. But second, my second point is this that we can easily grow dull. we can easily grow dull. I learned this lesson twice, and so having having heard it twice, I thought it'd be good to put this in here is it first was in my travels and the second was in church we went let me tell you about my experience of travels so I don't, we're on the way to California. We stopped at a place called Jackson Hole, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I think one of the most beautiful places on all the earth. Um, mountain right there. Gorgeous. Anyway, we went there because we visited a, a one-year kind of Bible college called Jackson Hole Bible College, which we're thinking about sending our, our, our kids to just kind of for a one-year, kind of it's an intensive discipleship program. And the, it's, it's all at a church in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, but some of the reason why we're thinking about it is because it, it comes from a creationistic perspective. Um, maybe some of you have heard about it. They take field trips. So it's a, it's a small group. Who knows? 15 to 30 students, 10 students. Spend a year there at the church. They've got to intern, do some ministries. They, they do study historical theology. Uh, they study books things like that, Bible survey, there are some of that. But, but some of it also, they take some field trips together to different places like Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and Mount St. Helens and Zion and Bryce. And they look at the creation in geology and kind of look and see how the evidence for creation can be interpreted in a young earth perspective rather than a long earth perspective. We've just thought that this might be a good year for Chris and SR to go together have a great time, brother, sister together. They'll remember forever and also just to, to get the creationistic perspective of there. But anyway, we, we went to this campus, which is really more like a camp. I mean, it's really not a, it was hard to find, first of all, and it's kind of like this rustic camp where they stay. And uh, you get here and there's a big open field and it's overshadowed by this, this beautiful mountain. And uh, we asked the kid, well, how would you like to spend a year here? And I'm like, well, okay, that'd be great. And as we talked with one of the members of the staff, she said this. She said, "Yes, yeah, it's amazing that we have an opportunity to, to live here and see this mountain and see this great scenery every day. And I think she confessed that sadly we get so used to this marvelous scenery that we don't even see it anymore. It's the same old mountain. Yeah, we see it, but but you miss the splendor for us, you know. We we're we're travelling in and just kind of seeing it afresh and saying, Wow, this is beautiful she's like, Oh yeah, that's just how been there. And it's a tendency that God has, has placed within us to grow dull to some things. Which actually, by the way, is, is, a, is a helpful thing. Like, like the second illustration shows. So this was in church. Second Sunday, we were there. Tony Sinelli, the pastor of Grace Bible Church, where we always attend. We go out to California. Great pastor, great preacher. He opened his sermon that we saw there. He told about how when he grew up, he grew up in a house about 50 feet from the railroad tracks. And he said it was so close that when the train came by, the, the entire house would, would rattle and shake. You know, and the windows would, would rattle like that and make a lot of noise. And those in the house, they want to talk to each other, have to shout to each other. They're watching TV, they couldn't hear the TV, they on their phone, just have to wait until the, the train passed. I know that many people have that experience, but he told of his. At first, he said that when he moved there, it was alarming and scary with the whole house shaking so much. And then he said it was just annoying. After a while, he said he hardly even noticed it anymore, just a routine part of life. Okay, train. (laughs) Whatever, He went on. He told the story about he had friends over for dinner, and they would experience the trauma of the train. And uh, he would just kind of be like, oh, pass the butter, please. (laughs) And they're like, (laughs) wow, the house is going to fall down. But he'd been so used to it. And he carried on as nothing there. Because Tony would grow dull to the sound of the train, which, by the way, is, is a very good thing. In that instance, uh, we experienced it when we were in Rockford. First few nights that we slept in our new home in Rockford, we were sleeping soundly, and then all of a sudden, one o'clock, <laughs> you know, we heard the planes coming into the UPS facility that we have here. And uh, it woke us up like the first two nights. We're like, oh, this is terrible. Can we move from DeKalb where planes don't fly that low? Have big jets, anyway, don't. And um, I've not heard them since. <laughs> They're like, not there. We can easily grow dull. Sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. And I think in many ways with respect to the glory of God and seeing the glories and realities of that, I think I think it can be a bad thing. We need to be refreshed in it. And I think also spiritually when we think about Christ, we can miss the marvels there as well. We can hear it so often. We can read about it so often. that We grow dull to the tremendous blessings we have in Christ. I mean, why, why is it that we were out traveling and we saw this big open expanse? Did we say "Wow"? Because we normally see just corn and soybeans. There's <laughs> no "Wow" factor there, really. However, I remember when we had some friends come. I remember Tori and Mark came, and they were they were like, "Wow, this, the corn is so tall. This is amazing," you know. And they stood up by the corn and walked. So it's just it's just different. But with respect to Christ, I mean, we we can get so used to. Jesus, He's just always been there. We've known salvation for years and years and years. That can just be dull, and so I think, what? Well, what's the antidote to that? The antidote is thinking about, okay, what what would it be like if none of the benefits of Jesus were ours? Because I think when you see the contrast, then when you when you be amazed again. So, so for instance, what what if you didn't have forgiveness of sins? Psalm 130 asks that question. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who can stand? None of us could stand. What would it be like if you didn't have redemption through His blood? You have to pay for own sins. in hell. What if you had no hope? What if you had no power to conquer sin? Because Christ wasn't dwelling in you with His Spirit to empower you to conquer sin. What if you had no power? What if you knew no grace? What if God justified you by works and not by faith? What if you had to face God on your own merits? And when we start thinking about this, maybe you then can look at Jesus and say, wow, wow. And not grow dull. I think this is a biblical way of arguing. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We were here a couple months ago, a month ago maybe, two months ago. But I think it's good if we go back there again, Ephesians chapter 2. The great passage speaks of our salvation. But before Paul gets to the good news, he paints the bad news first. And the bad news comes in verses 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Look what Paul's doing here. He's just describing what they were like. They were they were apart from Christ dead in their transgressions and sins. They used to walk according to the devil's power rather than God's power. And we lived in the lust of our flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were, we were children of wrath. We were, in other words, we were objects of God's wrath and hatred. And brings us back to what it would be like or what was it like when we were without Christ. And then verses 4 and following puts the contrast. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And now when you see His grace coming rich and free and abundant and abounding in glory and power, it's then that you see the contrast and say, wow again. So how good is it for us to reflect upon what life is apart from Christ? Then we can marvel that by grace you've been saved, verse 8, through faith and that not of yourselves a gift of God. Not through his all the works so that no one can boast. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we would walk in them. I'd love to talk more about this, these verses, but we need to get on. But you know, here's interesting. In verse 11, Paul does the same thing again. He talks about what it would be like being apart from Christ. And now what it's like being with Christ. Look at 11. Therefore, remember that formerly, in previous ages, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are also called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off and brought near by the blood of Christ, here come the blessings. For Himself is our peace. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, the Jew and the Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, and by it, having put to death the enmity, he came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile alike, have. Have our access to, in one spirit, to the Father. Now, apart from Christ, verse 11 says they were despised by the circumcision. They had no part of God's people. Verse 12. Separated from Christ, they were strangers to the covenants. I mean, the covenants weren't theirs, rather, they were for other people. They had no promises. Verse 12. They had no hope. They were without God, and they were far off. And again, what he's doing, he's setting up the contrast so that the wow factor might be there. See, everything's changed in Jesus. Instead, we're brought near, verse 13, to God. We've been united with the people of God, verse 14. By faith, we've come into the body of Christ. Verse 18, we have access in one Spirit to the Father. We have access to the Father. Now, once you were away, and now you have access. And what should happen? We should be gripped with the glories of Jesus. And we should say, Wow! I was reminded that at Grace Bible Church, you know, one of the things they did, which I think we need to work work at, and it's probably my responsibility to do that, but during the two services that we were there, during the course of the service, they had a time where the congregation really responded in prayer and praise to God. And um, it was really a refreshing time, right, Vaughn, And and was really good. So it just wasn't like an upfront performance, but was rather a... um, Um, just a response from people. And if you were there, you know these people were genuinely worshiping the Lord. But there was one man, he sat right up in front on the right-hand side, right over here. And uh, he prayed both times and his prayer went something like this. Oh Lord God, I thank You for saving me. I know that apart from Jesus, I would be out on the streets and probably dead, for I was a drunkard and You saved me by Your marvelous grace and I thank You and praise You today. Similar feeling kind of prayer that he just remembered his previous life as a, as a drunkard and um, away from God, an enemy of God. He knew where he was going, but God in His grace has saved him. And, and it changed everything, and he was, he was wowed and awed again by the grace of God. And I just think for us, we just need to constantly remember what we were, just like Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2, because we can easily grow dull, and that's the antidote, is to show the contrast with things. All right? Let's let's shift gears here now to uh, my third point ignorance of the law is, is no excuse. As we drove out to California, we went up through Illinois and Wisconsin and we saw a lot of these signs here along the road and we reached Minnesota and we saw a lot of these signs next and we were excited because it was making our trip shorter. And by the time we got to South Dakota and Wyoming, we saw some of these. And um, while we were in California, though, we, we saw some of these. And uh, that, was, that was okay. But one of the things about California is that they have these signs. And then, and then about an eighth mile later, they have signs that look like these. Now, I was driving a trailer, and I didn't realize it. And so I met one of these. That's <laughs> what so I did. I got my first speeding ticket ever. So, anyway, it was it was an experience that wasn't my the police officer, but pretty close. That was pretty close. Anyway, I was doing close to seventy and a fifty-five, and uh, I, I come up with lots of excuses. I could I uh, I didn't see the sign. You know, I saw the sign, but I didn't see the sign. You know what I mean? Um... It didn't it like didn't register. I mean, I forgot that I had a, a trailer behind me. But see, that's the role of a preacher and a pastor is to show you what you see, to make sure that you see it, right? I could have come up with that excuse. I could have said, well, there aren't signs like that in Illinois, though there used to be. There aren't. There used to be, and maybe some, but. But there aren't today. I mean, I I, I could argue that they aren't there now. And I'm so used to not having those signs anymore. I'm not sure. I I could argue this, that there were trailers along the way, passing me. In fact, there was this this boat that was, was this truck and this boat, and we were like going like this, like the whole way down. I remember, like for about 10 miles. We, probably about 5 or 10 times, 5 times probably, we passed each other, passed each other. I could have made that excuse. I was going about the speed of the other cars, I and mean, maybe everybody else is going about seventy, so I'm going about seventy. But you know what? None of these are valid. I was still a lawbreaker, and according to the law, I deserved a ticket, and I got one. And I'm not sure how much I need to pay, but apparently a letter's coming to to resolve that, and I will do that. But ignorance is no excuse. And when it comes to the law of God, I was just reflecting upon this. There's no excuse for ignorance either. And, and the reason is because we all know enough. I should have seen the sign. I should have known. And God has given us enough to know. We'll turn over to Romans chapter 2. This point comes out in the Scripture. I want us to be reminded of it again. The first three chapters of Romans, Paul's putting forth the doctrine of sin. He's showing how all are guilty before God. And this section in chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, he's talking about the Gentiles who don't have The law like people who don't see the sign. Maybe having never heard of God's law, having never been taught it, but God says ignorance is no excuse because God has given us something. Even if we've never heard the law, there's still enough in us that we know the law. Look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law... These not having the law are a law to themselves. And they show the work of the law written in their hearts. And here's what it is. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts ultimately accusing or else defending them. On that day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Here Paul is describing the godless man who naturally follows the law of God. Who is kind and helpful and courteous. Do you know non-Christians who are kind and helpful and courteous? Many, many are, who have a a love for their family, have a respect for authority. And they do these things not because they learned it in church, but because God has placed it in them their conscience. They just know what is right and what is wrong. They know how they should act and they know how they should behave, even though they've never heard it before, even though they never could go to a commandment or a Bible verse. People still know. Because God has given them a conscience, and if and they do good things, quote unquote, they show they have enough upon their hearts. Because God's given them this conscience, but they do do enough wrong that their conscience will accuse them of the wrong that they have done. I think you talk with uh, most all people. Are you a sinner? Yeah, people know they're sinners. They say, "Well, I'm a little sinner," but they know they're sinners. Because God has put there. They, they, can't, they can't claim ignorance. Even if they've never been in church, never been around That When the day of judgment comes, which is what verse 16 is talking about them, when all give account to Jesus, nobody will claim ignorance on that day because they have their conscience which will rise up. Even if they never knew the Torah, if they never knew the story of Adam or Noah or Abraham or never heard of Saul or David or Solomon, can't name the books of the Bible, maybe even never heard about Jesus, they still knew enough. That they were wrong and they need to cry out for help to have the wrongs made right. That's why they need the gospel. They need to hear forgiveness in Jesus, so they can believe. Because ignorance is no excuse. And people stand before God guilty. Look, verse nine of chapter three. What then are we Jews better than they, those Greeks? No. We've already charged, and that's what chapter 2 is about, that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As says, written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. These verses scope the entire world, Jew and Gentile, like nobody's going to escape God's wrath because of ignorance. When people are lawbreakers, they need to pay for breaking the law, as I did, as I will pay. The good news comes and. Verse 21, however, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here it is. It's the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he says there's no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews fall short. short the glory of God. Gentiles, we fall short of the glory of God. But, by faith, we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And there's the good news. That, that though we are sinners, the law and our conscience and creation all condemns us. In Christ, we're made righteous. And that we can rejoice. We believe that Christ. in Christ, God reckons our faith as righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 6. All right, let's move on from there, thankfully, now that that's out of my system, so you know about it. so um, Fourth point, and this is, four and five are, are kind of kind of same, but here's point number four: suffering is a part of the Christian life. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. During our times of family worship, during our vacation, our, we focused on Second Timothy. All right, something happened there. Who knows? You can turn your Bibles to Second Timothy. We we were look. We went to Second Timothy chapter one. It's a family, we memorized this chapter during our family vacation. What we did? We just simply read the chapter each day. We'd review the verse that we'd memorized and remember. We memorized one verse every day. That's all. That's all we did. And um, then after we memorized that verse, we just had conversation and thought about that verse and talked about it. And then we added another verse and talked about it. And that's what we did on, on vacation. And the result is that 2 Timothy 1 has been placed upon our hearts. Now, I didn't know this before I went on vacation. But just with our family. 2 Timothy 1.1 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did As I constantly remember you in my prayers, night and day. Longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God within you, which was bestowed on you through laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of Our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, But 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 now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I have been appointed, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, and I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded that He is able to, to guard that, what I have entrusted to Him against that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard to the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You know very well the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for He often refreshed me was not ashamed of my chains. But when He was in Rome, He searched for me and found me. And then this last verse we've memorized, we're not done. I, I, can't, I can't remember it. Let me just read it for you for completeness' sake. mistake. The Lord grant mercy to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Here's what we find. We find that if we memorize a verse one day, we come back the next day, we can't get it. But if we review it the next day, oftentimes the third day, it gets, we can normally get it. And by the fourth day, we can get a little better. By the, that's why you saw at the beginning. I'm a lot better than I am at the end, because we just reviewed it every day. Now, the reason I quote that for you is is this, is I couldn't have quoted you 2 Timothy chapter 1 from memory before vacation, but we've learned it on vacation. Just one verse a day, and I'd encourage you just to see that, just in your family, just kind of one verse each day and what you can do. And so here's what's happened. Here's the result. 2 Timothy 1 has been on my mind, and one of the great themes of 2 Timothy 1 is about suffering and how crucial and central suffering is to the Christian life. Look at verse 8. He says, Paul says to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What's the testimony of our Lord? A suffering Savior. Don't be ashamed of Him or of me, His what? His suffering prisoner. But rather, what? Join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. This is a call to Timothy to suffer. It was a call for Timothy to embrace suffering. Jesus suffered. That was His testimony. He came and lived a righteous life among us, and yet His life was filled with trials and difficulties and sorrows. Ultimately, He's killed upon a cross for living a righteous life and and telling everybody who He was. He was the King of the universe. That's the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of a suffering Savior. Paul said, don't be ashamed of Me. As he's writing this epistle, he's in prison. And he was in prison because of his faith in Christ. And because he boldly proclaimed it. In verses 9 And ten, he outlines the Gospel. Everything that God did, God saved us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to God's own purpose and grace, which was granted us from all eternity. God had planned our salvation from eternity past, and He brought it to pass. Not by what we've done, but according to His own mercy. And Paul, for the Gospel then, verse 11, was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher And he said it's because of what God has done in him that he suffers. Look at verse 12. For this reason, I suffer these things. God called him the holy calling. He was called to to preach this gospel, appointed to be a preacher. And teacher. life for Paul was difficult. He stood alone. Look at verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Here was Paul at some hour of need. People could have stood up and testified to Paul, but they were they were ashamed of him because he was suffering, because their Christianity had no, uh, no box for suffering. You think the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is new? It was right there in the first New Test- in, in the first century in the New Testament. Is it is it our Lord? Jesus suffered. And we are, are called to follow in his steps. Paul was suffering. It's called to Timothy was to suffer. Verse 8. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's difficult in Timothy, verse 7, wasn't to be timid, rather really supposed to be bold, because God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power, love, and discipline. Timothy wasn't to be ashamed of his suffering and the difficulties facing. And you know what? He was facing difficulties. In Acts 20, it speaks about the prophecy about men are going to come up from among you, among the elders probably, and turn against you. And there are people, even in 2 Timothy, talking about pulling people away from the truth. As we read chapter 1 every day and we spilled over into chapter 2 on on many days, we found in chapter 2, like verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. And so there's this, this chat in the church that's bad. And, and Timothy's being looked at and badly. And, and among these people who are spreading this talk are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who has gone astray from the truth saying the resurrection has already taken place. What are they talking about there? They're talking about how we can live a victorious life. Our resurrection. We are conquerors. We shouldn't suffer anymore. We should have health, wealth, and prosperity. And Paul's saying that's not the Gospel. The Gospel is that Jesus suffered and died and we too need to live righteous lives and suffer for it as we call people the righteousness and the faith in Christ. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. In chapter 4, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, when Paul went to visit the churches, he said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And I say this is something I've learned and been freshed upon again. Is just the family we talked about. We've memorized this chapter. And we said suffering is a part of the gospel. And it's been good for us to think about those things. And it really leads me to my my last point this morning. It's not the last thing I learned. I, I'd love to tell you about the silver chair. Everything I learned from reading the silver chair. It's like my favorite Narnia book. How uh, Eustace and Scrubs, Eustace and Jill, miss all the signs and yet. Aslan still pulls through and rescues Prince Rillian from the enchantment of the Green rit- Witch. What's her name? Jardis? I forget what her name was. But like, it was not according to works. God just does it. I'd love to tell you about that. I'd um, love to tell you about other things. But one last thing. Suffering makes the church strong. So suffering is a part of the Gospel. and Suffering makes the church strong. Uh, while we are in Oregon... Uh, we spent some time at Jake Schwartz's home. Um, Jake's wife is a Russian-born woman, and uh, her parents are head of Slavic Gospel in the Soviet Union in Moscow. Uh, and so, just like Dr. Provost is head of Slavic Gospel here in Rockford, he's head of the Slavic Gospel in Moscow. Just a you know a, a, a crucial leader in, Rus- in uh, Russia for the Baptist Union and just helping Slavic Gospel coordinate things with that. So anyway. His parents were in town. Her oldest parents were in town while we were there. And so we got a chance to live with uh, Valeri and what? Nadia. Nadia were their names. And um, think about these people. They are, I don't know, maybe 55, I don't know, maybe 60. Think about what they've lived through. They, they were believers in Russia before perestroika. And so I said, you know what, this would be a great opportunity to teach our kids. And so I gathered them and, and I asked one question and we got a, an answer for half an hour, 45 minutes. And the question I asked was this. I had my kids there. Chris and SR stayed the whole time. Hannah Hannah laughed after a little bit. But I said, can you tell us a little bit about what church was like in the former Soviet Union as compared to now? Because I, I imagine things are different. <laughs> and yeah, things are different. And uh, primarily it Nadia who answered the question. And uh, she told us of how um, growing up, her dad was a pastor. I don't think he was a paid pastor. I think he was a worker and often just pastored this church. It was a small church. Um, but the thing that stood out to her, she said, is this, is how eager people were to come to church. I mean, whenever the church was gathering, they gathered. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Friday I mean, they didn't have anything in the Soviet Union. And uh, they were believers, and there was atheism all around. The communists were there, bashed them down, and they needed help, and they needed strength. They went there, like uh, people in the desert go to water, and she said it was a it was a great time. They had each other, had the Lord, were seeking to hold fast and stand fast. And, and then at some point, she talked about how the how they were. This little group of people were able to build a church building. Now, I don't know how big this church building was. I imagine it was pretty small. Um, but in order to do so, they went through some zoning ordinances. I, I don't think they were in a bigger city. I think they were more rural went through zoning ordinances, got everything signed um, according to the, the law, what they needed to do to build this church building. But once they, they built it, and so building it, I think the people of the church really put much effort into it. So they, they're gathering together for worship and going out, putting some two-by-fours up. And, pay, and I think it was probably a slow process to put this little building up. And once it got up, kind of word got around the city, the city officials came and showed up with bulldozers and uh, basically said, this, this can't be, but you did everything... According to what you said, you said it'd be okay, and it did. They got. They, I think even she talked about how the children had to get away because it was kind of dangerous. and They kind of took everyone away, and they bulldozed their building. But you know what that did to the church? It made it stronger. That's what she said people were, you know, had lots of evangelistic opportunities, and more people were interested because they were responding rightly to this terrible injustice. Even the atheists were crying out about the injustice of the things going on, and. She said it was difficult days. I think the church still was small because there were few people willing to give all their life for Christ and few people willing to go through such suffering and persecution. And that's, what, that's the main picture which she gave of former Soviet Union. Fast forward to today. She said the churches, they are bigger. Um, it's easier because um, things have opened up quite a bit. But she said this, people are a lot less eager to be together with each other than they were before. So in the past, it was clear who was a Christian because people were either in the church and suffering or they didn't want anything to do with it and were out. He says, now today, you get a lot of people just kind of in, just kind of doing their thing, professing. There's no price to pay. It's easy to come to church. Lots of people kind of come into church. And, and I'm not sure she looked at it as a, such a good thing yeah things happening and, and good and better, but it's much more like America, where things are easy and smooth. It's easy to profess to be a Christian. Most um, government governmental, whatever um, governors, potential presidents, Christians, good thing to be a Christian. so people are always say they're Christians. As a result, church isn't as strong as it used to be in Russia. Zeal isn't what it used to be. Easy times made the church weak. And so, know this. When suffering comes, the church just gets stronger. I want to make one final application. It's really kind of dovetailing from this a little bit. Maybe more addressing, ad- addressing your heart. But let me just show you a scripture. Turn over to James 1. Here's how it gets stronger. James chapter 1. And I'll close this final illustration. When suffering comes, it makes the church strong. When suffering comes in your life, it makes your life stronger. Consider it all joy, my brothers. James chapter one, verse two, you probably know this. When you encounter various trials. Right? In other words, when, when suffering comes, consider it joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks something and lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously without reproach and be given to him. You must ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, the testimony of, of people going through trials, oftentimes they say that's when I was closest to the Lord. That's what I hear. When I, when I didn't have anything else. That's when I was close to the Lord. These people in Russia, they didn't have anything else. They had all these atheists upon them. Uh, th- but they had each other and they had the Lord and that was enough. And so likewise, when suffering comes, it makes individuals strong. When suffering comes, it makes the church strong as well. Um, a little bit related, I had a little, little tangent. I just want to read. i got one of Grace's partners. We give money to Grace to you um, consistently. but So we got a letter from them. They give us CDs and it's a good deal. Uh, but anyway, uh, here's a letter, whatever, John MacArthur or someone wrote this of, about something. But it says, Dear Stephen Avon, you don't have to be a trained economist to realize they're extremely tough times. Financial uncertainty permeates our culture from Wall Street to Main Street, and it affects every one of us in some ways or another. Wages are tight. Unemployment is soaring. Students graduating with advanced degrees from the best colleges are having trouble getting their careers started because no one's hiring Personal debt levels are through the roof. Relentless news of foreclosures and falling home values dominates the housing market. People have less discretionary income than at any time in recent memory. Anxiety is high. Taxes are high. And they'll soon get much higher. It's because the federal government is also accumulating debt at a record pace. U.S. not alone. Most national governments worldwide are similarly mired in debt. Greece is literally bankrupt, and the bailout for Greece will likely cause years of recession, possibly more bankruptcies in the European Union. Many economists say the United States is headed for a similar insolvency, and some say we're already there. But that did not stop the United States government from offering bailouts to Wall Street, failing banks, and foundering automobile industry. In return for the bailouts, the government, in effect, takes control of these industries. Washington will soon take oversight of health care as well. On top of that, a recent series of disasters ranging from Katrina in 2005 to the oil rig disaster of the Gulf of Mexico have added immensely to the financial burdens of the federal government while utterly ruining many private businesses. Meanwhile, the size of U.S. government and the massive web of government regulations have grown exponentially in the decades since September 11th. While Washington was steadily taking control of business and industry, our courts and legislators are putting more limitations on individual freedoms. We've seen the erosion of religious freedom, the aggressive attempts to stifle God as we're in the public arena, and there's no end in sight for most of these trends. How do these things get so bleak? How do our economy sink so quickly after the boom years of the internet and the explosive and lucrative growth of so much high-tech industry? The problem cannot be blamed entirely on uncontrolled growth and undisciplined taxes, spend policies on big government. Those are surely factors. But another key factor was unscrupulous greed especially among the captains of industry, the head of the banking and movers and shakers of Wall Street. During the years when they were making massive profits, they took for themselves enormous bonuses and obscene salaries, rarely sharing their company's profits with working rank-and-file employees. Those nine-to-five workers' salaries grew at a much slower rate than industry profits, and to satisfy their greed, so that the greed of the, those execs, the greed of others, many of them borrowed more than they could afford to repay. Borrowing money controlled the oligarchies and have profited so immensely from their labor in the first place. So as so the gap between the very wealthy and the middle class grew wider and wider, The rich profit again off people whose wages they had stinted. All that sets a stage for more recession, bigger, more intrusive government, further economic turmoil, and possibly even social unrest. Similar times in the past have led to revolutions, sweeping changes in the political landscape. All right? It's amazing, right? And I think he paints it pretty well. Um, And here's the statement, though, that I want you to catch, though. Think about suffering. It's going to make the church grow strong. And that's where he ends. If that sounds very grim, and if you think I'm about to deliver a prophecy of doom, nothing could be further from what's actually on my heart. Actually, I'm excited to see what God is is going to do in His church in the days and years to come. We may be facing difficult times, but the church flourishes in hard times. And none of those crises are reasons for individual Christians to fear our God is still sovereign. And I think the suffering that's come from unemployments and difficulties in marriages and difficulties in finding a job uh, give us opportunities to share with each other and to help one another and serve one another and make the church stronger. And yes, this might not be suffering for the Gospel's sake, but suffering in general oftentimes leads to prosperity of the church because where else are people going to turn? they only have one place to turn when their, their bank accounts fall down or when can't find a job, they'll turn to the church for help. And we have a chance to to rise up to um, just make us stronger. So if you think about the bleakness of our economic outlook, um, think about the kingdom of God and how much bright outlook that is. Right? Well, those are some things I learned on my vacation and next week will be in Hebrews 10. Uh, let me just pray and then I have an announcement for you. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that You would would really help us to see these things. Um, as You've shown them to me these last three weeks, I pray that they would come upon all of us with uh, the glory of God. May we experience it and be so convinced of it through creation, how glorious You are, that nothing can persuade us away. that You exist. And the glories aren't just in the big things, they're in the small things, in the tiny flowers and in the tiny ecosystems of lakes and ponds and rivers and I pray you'd help us to see your glory. I pray, Lord, we're not dull to those things. May we always remember where we were without Christ and that with Christ, how much better it is. Help us to realize also that uh, we are obligated under the law to follow it. There's no ignorance we can claim. Your law will be rigid, but may we see the glories of Christ far outweigh that. Lord, I, I pray that we would see the role of suffering even as we have seen as a family from 2 Timothy, I pray that we would see that all together as a church body, Is that suffering is a part of Christian life. Help us to see that and help make the church strong these days when things are difficult and hard. When everyone's looking just for happiness and joy, may we find happiness and joy and contentment in our Savior who died for us and reconciled us to You. We thank You, O Lord, and pray in Your name. Amen.